0: turn then to our Bible, please, to Genesis chapter 3, and verses 1 to 6, Genesis chapter 3, the first six verses. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as God's, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. So tonight, uh, this is the the last um, section of sermon on the revelation of God before sin came into the world. The subsequent um, messages will be after sin has come into the world, but we're still in the period of God's revelation where man is not yet fallen. Um, and last time we spoke about the um, probation, or what's called the covenant of works, which God made with man, whereby if man was to fulfill a perfect obedience to God's command then he would be given eternal life through the sacrament of the tree of life, which was, of course, as we have already studied, the whole purpose of creation was um, that man would progress from the first state of creation in Eden to heaven itself, where he would, through obedience, enter into a permanent an unchangeable state of blessedness where sin would no longer be possible because man would have obeyed the covenant of works. Um, And tonight then, well last time I should say, we studied how the symbols of the tree of life and the symbol of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil played into that um, scenario. And I said that there was a third symbol which we would come on to, and that's what our subject is tonight. The third symbol is the symbol of the serpent, which we have just read. And if you could try to bear in mind what I said about the um, definition of a symbol, at least in biblical terms, we're not saying that a symbol is something which is uh, made up or fictional, they are real things, but they're they have a spiritual, a biblical value message way beyond um, their mere existence. And we'll come on to see how that's true of this serpent as well. We'll pick up the rest of the chapter, verses um, 7 to the end next time, because that concentrates more on the consequences of the fall of man. What happened to man after man's sin. These first six verses are about the temptation and the actual fall of man. These matters, as I say, will turn to, <clears throat> those matters will turn to next time. In these first six verses, then, we have revealed to us the tragic breaking by man of the covenant with God. God had placed man in the garden, the Lord's garden, and he had instituted law, and that law was to be obeyed, and as a focal point, a testing point, he had made a stipulation that man could eat of any of the fruit from any of the trees of the garden, apart from one. And were a man to have obeyed that, as I say, he would have passed into everlasting and permanent life with God. And so this specific test about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, we spoke about last time, but now, in these verses, the whole story reaches a crisis point. Would man, would Eve in the first place, when it comes to them, would they obey God or would they not obey God? The 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith states this in chapter 6 and paragraph 1. I read this because basically this sermon tonight is um, almost a crib from it. It says, although God created man, upright and perfect, and gave him a righteous law, which had been unto life, had he kept it, and threatened death upon the breach thereof, yet he did not long abide in this honour. Satan using the subtlety of the serpent to subdue Eve. Then, by her seducing Adam, who without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law of their creation, and the command given to them in eating the forbidden fruit, which God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purposed to order it to his own glory. So we're going to really think about that statement from our creed, a creed that I think we perhaps more than any other um, say is our creed in this church. And I want just very simple, its going to be a very simple sermon this evening, just to walk through these first six verses and begin by looking at uh, what the scriptures say here, first of all, about the tempter, the tempter. And we read of this in the first verse. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So one of the creatures um, God had made began to speak to Eve. Of course to the modern mind that sounds a little bit ridiculous, isn't it? A bit far-fetched. But there is every indication in the text that we are to understand this serpent as a real serpent rather than a metaphor or a figure of speech. Mm -hmm. Um, I say that because um, notice how the serpent is contrasted in terms of its subtlety with the other beasts of the field in verse 1. Therefore, logically, if um, the serpent was not real, then neither were the beasts to which it had been compared. And then in the fourteenth verse, we have a very physical description of the punishment that eventually was incurred or meted out upon the serpent where upon its belly it would have to go, dust it would have to eat all the days of its life. That sounds very realistic and physical, doesn't it, rather than allegorical. So a real serpent. But we must also say that it wasn't just a serpent. That it wasn't a serpent alone. It wasn't an animal that could talk. The Bible doesn't teach. Um, It doesn't teach confusion between man and beasts. There's only one occasion in Scripture where an animal is recorded as speaking, that's Balaam's donkey. Mm -hmm. Um, Apart from that, there is no record of any animal using human speech. And On the whole, the Scripture is very careful to keep that separation between man and beast. So animals do not speak, at least in a human sense, they do speak their own communications which uh, but not using human speech. So what we have here is a real serpent made use of by Satan, by satanic power. Again, even that's quite hard to understand, but maybe the most similar Maybe a way to understanding that—to think about in the Gospels how that man of the tombs, um, he was possessed by a legion, uh, and voices came from that man—not his voice, uh, a demonic voice—and uh, the Lord Jesus cast legion out, and legion entered into a herd of pigs, and those pigs were destroyed; they ran over the bank and were destroyed. It's not an exact parallel, but it's an example of how Satan can use an instrument uh, in the animal world uh, to do his uh, to do his work. So this serpent becomes an instrument of the evil one. Well there are many beasts in the field and no doubt there are Horses and lions and dogs and all sorts, no doubt. Like Why choose this particular beast? Well, we don't know for sure, but um, the first verse hints at the answer to that question when it says the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. Mm. Um, it was more crafty, mm. perhaps a there was something about the way the serpent, um, the serpent's kind of winding movement, its ability to camouflage in the sand, its skill to secretly harm people as they walk by, um, and put poison into someone's life, into someone's body. Maybe all those things were, were a suitable um, physical outward representation of the inner character of the evil one that had possessed that serpent. We think of Genesis 49 17 where it says, "Dan shall be a serpent by the way and adder in the path that biteth the horse heels so that his rider shall fall backwards sneaky and crafty hidden, and just coming out and causing harm. Martin Luther's hymn we've just sung says For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe well. his craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Revelation 12 verse 9 mentions Satan's ability Satan's ability to deceive it says, and the great dragon was cast out that old serpent mm. called the devil and Satan which deceiveth the whole world. Yes, the serpent is more subtle than any beast in the field. You see, is a real enemy. Mm. We may not want to be quite so obsessed about Satan as Martin Luther was. I think he went over the top. We saw Satan round every corner, but maybe we're the other extreme today, and we don't pay sufficient attention to the reality of the enemy that faces us. You see, we have an enemy that wants to lead us away from obedience to Christ. Paul the apostle uh, was genuinely concerned about some of the Christians in the church at Corinth. He says in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. You see, we don't have much time to focus exactly on, on who or what Satan is. But we know, in very headline form, what the Bible says about this enemy of ours. It teaches that Satan is a created being, mm. whose angelic name was Lucifer. He's commonly referred in the Bible as to a Satan, or Satan in Hebrew, it is a Hebrew word. And that Hebrew word means to act as an enemy, to resist or to oppose. That's what Satan is. And Satan hates God's people and he wants, the Bible says, to sift us like wheat. The Bible talks of Satan walking up and down in the earth. He's referred to as the adversary, who like a roaring lion seeks whom of us he may devour is a false accuser, especially of the brethren, that is to say, Christians. Mm. He is a murderer from the beginning. He's called the ancient ser- serpent and the tempter. In power, he is the strong man, armed, mm. and the prince of this world, the Bible calls him. He's called the God of this world. Mm. He's called the great dragon. Jesus says he has the power of death and can cast both body and soul into hell. This is no mean mere enemy, is Is he? This is a formidable foe. And Satan is full of craft and tricks, and Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 verse 7 that he's like a hunter, laying little snares and traps for the unwary Christian to fall into. Jesus says that while we sleep, he stays awake and sows tears among the wheat. And so as Christians, we are called by the word upon, we are called upon by the word of God to understand that our fight is not against flesh and blood, mm-hmm. but against a power beyond human. Against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. That's what we're warned against. Mm. This is why it's so important to come uh, to meetings like this and to pray Mm. and to understand what what is at stake. Our enemy is the same enemy that we read of here in chapter 3, verse 1. So he, first of all then, the tempter. But then we come on to the one tempted. In verse 3, verse 1, it says, And he said unto the woman. The woman was the one tempted. The crafty serpent, stroke devil, because they are the same thing here, seduced what the Bible calls and I'm very much against politically and very unpolitically correct in doing so. It says that the female is the weaker vessel. And the devil knew this to be true and cornered Eve away from her husband, isolated her, and did this in order to conquer her husband, who was the covenant head. Of the human race, Eve was not the covenant head. If I forget to say, I'll say it now, in case I, I say it now in case I forget, all would not have been lost if it had only been Eve who had sinned. Mm. She was not the covenant head, the federal head. It was Adam. But Satan's desire and plan was through Eve, his wife, to cause the first Adam to fall. Satan's mission was to desecrate the holy domain of God over which man had been appointed, as we talked about in previous studies, he had been appointed a royal priest. He had a duty to guard that holy land and holy place. And Satan contrived to activate the curse that had been threatened by eating from the fruit of the tree the knowledge and good and evil. He tried and indeed succeeded in seducing man into breaking the covenant so that an offended God would terminate, cut off and cancel his plan for humanity. We'll see next time that, that wasn't God's plan, but what God did, he would have been we're well within his rights. It would have been just if God had done that, but he didn't. Mm-hmm. We can't talk about that so much this evening. So that was Satan's purpose. To subtly and craftily destroy the work of God. That's what Satan wants to do, dear friends, today and it has always been the case to destroy and oppose. Satan or Satan means to oppose. Literally, that's what the word means. To be an enemy. So if that was Satan's purpose, what was God's purpose? Because, as I said, I've tried to stress, we must always read the scripture, God's word. How does does God fit in to all these passages and all this truth? Because everything comes from him. And everything must go back to him. And we must always read scripture in reference to God. So what did God have in mind? What was his plan? Well, we have to go back, don't we, to the fact that man had this priestly role in the garden of God. And part of the duty of a priest in the Old Testament was to guard the holy place. They they were well within the um, law to strike and kill anyone who desecrated God's temple. In fact, they were congratulated for doing so on occasion. And Adam was a priest and his role was to keep God's land, his holy land, free from sin. And from Satan. And so, from God's perspective, this temptation was a golden opportunity for man to fulfill his historic purpose. It was, or could have been, a golden opportunity for man, almost like the handing over of Satan to man for judgment. That's what man should have done. Right from the beginning, you see, it has always been God's plan that His people would judge angels. And the scripture says that we will judge angels as Christians. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? You see, that is part of the original priesthood that man had. The first Adam was made in the image of God, he was a judge. And when Satan entered the temple of God, opposing and exalting his name above God, what was man's job to do? What was his role? It was to rise up in holy wrath and cleanse God's temple. That's what Adam should have done. We contrast this to the Lord Jesus Christ with the second Adam. How he cleansed the temple. He, as the second Adam, fulfilled God's purpose in so many ways. But he opposed the opposer. He cleansed the temple from sin see, God's purpose for man was for him to trample the blasphemer underfoot. And if man had done that, and we discussed this already, if man had achieved that, then what we look forward to at the end of time, in the final judgment, would have happened right at the beginning of time. And man would have entered into that eschatological hope that Sabbath day, which we spoke about on a previous occasion, where he would have entered into the victory of God and the eternal rest. Then let us now come on, having looked at the one tempted, to the temptation itself. The temptation we read about in the latter part of verse 1 and on to verse 5. It says, for God doth know, that in the day ye thereof, that your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as God's, knowing good and evil." So Satan proceeds in this very crafty way, and it's almost impossible to exhaust the depths of the subtlety in these verses. He begins with a, with a sly, seemingly innocuous question. Yea, hath God said, ye shall eat of every tree of the garden. You know, when somebody says something or asks a question, um, depending on the pitch of your voice, you, it can mean different things, can't it? You can make something sound ironic or um, helpful. Or, you, you can change you can, it's something written down. If you say it in different ways, it means so many different things. And this is what's going on here. Eve Eve would have been totally deceived. There are layers of deception. And she could have heard it in so many different ways. Did God really say, you shall eat from every tree? So is Satan simply asking whether it was true that God had said that? Or is Satan questioning why God commanded it? You could have been saying, well, for what reason would God have said this? Or was it said in such a tone of voice to imply that God would never have said that because God is so wise and this seems such a stupid thing to have said, therefore you must have got it all wrong. You see, Satan uses tactics to undermine God's word in so many ways. Mm-hmm. And he's still doing it today. God's Word, Satan Satan is implying, should you be taking God's Word literally? Shouldn't we somehow reframe it and make it more sense to the culture and to the uh, context in which we're speaking? Surely we just can't take God's Word at face value. It must have deeper meanings that we haven't yet understood. We must explain it away somehow and critically examine it. This is what Satan does the whole time. Maybe Satan also was insinuating that God didn't really love Eve because he wouldn't allow her the use of all the truths. Satan is implying that God begrudges you the happiness that you would have if you had eaten from that fruit. That's another tactic of the devil, isn't it, dear friends? Questioning the goodness of God. Is God really good? Mm. Or is there more pleasure elsewhere? Is there some greater happiness beyond what we get from following God and obeying God? And cunningly, Satan challenges the Stipulation of God's law by asking about the extent of God's prohibition. You shall not eat every tree. If you put the emphasis on every, it sounds different, doesn't it? Is, is, is God's law too extensive? The it's not fair argument. Surely God doesn't mean what he said. It wouldn't be fair. I just want to say something here at this point. Adam and Eve, we're talking about Eve at the moment, had never in their whole lives, not once, ever made an independent judgement or even had an independent thought from God. But Satan here is tempting Eve to deny God's absolute right to command. Mm. It was an incitement to rebellion. Mm. Because for the first time ever, he's putting a wedge between uh, Eve's mind, between her interests and God's interests. Only very slightly at the beginning. And using craftiness, Satan got Eve to separate in her mind God's interest and her own. And for her to act in her self-interest against the alleged unkindness of God. And by so doing, Satan is implying that it is he, rather than God, that has her best interests at heart. Mm. And then we notice the response of the woman. We may may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, verse 2. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Well, she correctly says that God has allowed her and her husband to eat of the trees of the garden, apart from this one. But then she adds to God's word, did you notice? She says, neither shall ye touch it. Well, the point is, God had never said that. Mm. God had never said that they were not allowed to touch it. So she adds to God's words. And is she here betraying an assumption that she had a right to things that the Creator had not really sufficiently respected. And she belies her true heart by adding, basically making something up altogether, implying that God really, perhaps God really has been unfair. Perhaps Satan is saying something true. Perhaps God isn't just. Perhaps He doesn't really want what is best for me. And now, reading her in like a fish, um, He turns from questioning God's law, that command about the tree, to now openly casting doubt on the sanction God had made for breaking the law. When He says, Ye shall not surely die. verse 4. He denies openly that God openly denies God's threat. He denies the certainty of death. And then he substitutes the divine punishment with two promises. He says, For God knows that in the day in which you eat of it, your eyes will also be opened and you shall be as God. You shall know good and evil. By which really Satan meant you will experience good and evil. And so Satan attacks God's character, his integrity. He claims that God had lied about the probation tree to prevent man from becoming like him in respect to the knowledge of good and evil. And because of that, Eve is well within her rights, Satan implies to ignore God's command. Ignore it because such unfair restrictions on your rights, on your potential as a human to to grow in yourself and to become the person you should be, such restrictions need to be got rid of. It's a barrier to to your growth and to your potential. And therefore ignore it. so he says, just just eat from that tree, because it's not true, that you'll certainly die. And and if you take from that fruit, you will have the knowledge of good and evil. You will know as God knows. You see, he was offering Eve, and by implication Adam, a shortcut to that eschatology that we were talking about previously. He did the same with Jesus in the desert, didn't he? All these things I will give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. You see, Satan always offers a shortcut. For the first Adam, eating of the tree, of the fruit of the tree would mean man's dominion over the world would be firmly established without him needing to be confirmed in holiness and righteousness. Well, that's what Satan said. But have you noticed, This is often missed. And Satan completely fell for it. He's talking about the wrong tree. God never said, he never said that life would come from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said it would come from the tree of life. And Satan is saying, eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you will have all of these promises. But it wasn't from that tree. You see, this is what Satan does. He fools us and deceives. And the woman was enticed. And in her heart, in her heart, she had not yet eaten of the fruit, but in her heart, she had replaced her father. She had replaced Elohim with Satan. She had replaced the covenant of life with a covenant of death she was now worshipping the Prince of Darkness rather than the living God. Really in her heart she'd already moved away from God. And then fourthly we read of the victory of the serpent in the transgression of the woman and our first parents violation of the covenant of works. <clears throat> when the woman verse six, saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to the eyes sorry, and a tree to be desired to make one wise she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat Eve's transgression is described in three stages, three movements, I like to think of. it. First of all, an internal movement, an external movement, and then a vertical movement. The first was the internal movement, and the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a desire of the eyes, and a tree desirable for understanding. You see, step by step, she was being led to take of that forbidden fruit. And it began internally. She looked with the eyes. And I believe not just the eyes of her body, but the eyes of her mind. She lusted after that forbidden fruit. It was an inordinate looking. She was enticed by the beauty of the tree. And and she saw that the tree was good for food. That relates, if we think of John 1 John 2, 16, that relates, doesn't it, to the lust of the flesh. That's how Satan can lead us into sin. To begin with, the lust of the flesh. Appetites of various kinds. The tree was good for food. And then secondly, she says, it was pleasant to the eyes. That relates to the lust of the eyes, which John speaks of. And then, a tree to be desired To make one wise. Well, that relates to the pride of life, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And that's how he fell through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And that's what you and I need to constantly bring to God. Because Satan will attack us in all three areas. Our flesh, our lusts, our appetites—lust of the eyes, what we look at—and the pride of life. We often miss that one out. Multiple, I, I, know so much. I've read so many books. This is, this is my, this is, this is more my temptation. I confess, the pride of life—to think that you know. You're educated, you're something because you've read all these things. It's the pride of life to And it can lead you away from God. So there's the internal movement and then there's the external movement. Externally, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. She reached out and took the fruit. She transgressed and violated the covenant of works. Satan has tricked her into believing that this, this fruit was the sacramental fruit that would give her eternal life. When in fact, as I've already said, it was the wrong tree. That was the tree of life. And she now eats at Satan's table rather than at the Lord's table. And you know, in our lives, if we we sup at Satan's table doing the things that he wants us to do, then we're supping at his table and not the Lord's table. Our place is at the table of the Lord, not any other table. You'll be invited to other tables, but you've got a place reserved for you at the table of the Lord. And Satan wants to take you away. But even at this stage, as I said, all was not lost. Eve was not the federal head, the covenant head, but Adam. And Adam could still, in his role as priest of the garden, have driven Eve out of the garden as Eve should have referred to her husband and he should have driven the serpent out of the garden. And then lastly there was this vertical movement. She gave to her husband with her and he did it. Eve proceeds to make a convert of her husband. She acts immediately as Satan's missionary And her husband was the first communist. So crafty was Satan that he managed to get the covenant head of the human race to fall without even having a meeting with him. Without any direct confrontation with Adam. He got his wife to do. That's clever, isn't it? Mm. Satan ignored the divinely instituted family authority structure by isolating Eve from her husband and deceiving Eve. Mm. And Eve ignores God's family structure by not immediately referring to her husband. But God holds who responsible? Ultimately, Adam. Mm. Adam is the covenant head. It was his job to guard the garden, to guard his wife, he was the head not only of Eve but of all humanity itself. And Adam—and this this sounds—you know this is not the way we think of marriage now—but in that context, Adam should have done. Adam should have confronted Eve as an evil presence, as one who should have been repulsed and delivered over to God's judgment. That was his priestly task. That sounds tough, but that's what he should have done. That's what the Bible often says. God's covenant, for example, with the Israelites, illustrates what Adam should have done. On them also was placed the priestly duty of guarding the holy land from idolatry, and. Um, If you turn to Deuteronomy 13, verse 6, it gives us an example of the priestly uh, responsibility that the priests had. And and this this, this is shocking when you read it. It says, If thy brother, the son of thy mother, or thy son, or thy daughter, just think of that, or thy daughter, or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is as thine own soul, enticed thee secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which thou hast not known, thou nor thy fathers, namely of the gods of the people, which are round about thee, nigh unto thee, or far off from thee, From the one end of the earth, even unto the other end of the earth. Thou shalt not consent unto him, nor hearken unto him. Listen to this. Neither shall thine eye pity him. Neither shalt thou spare, neither shalt thou conceal him, but thou shalt surely kill him. Thine hand shall be first upon him, to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people." You see, Jesus said that man's primary obligation is to God's covenant and to love him. To love him perfectly even if it means hating we don't exactly know what he meant by this but he said even if it means hating father or mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters and even your own life. You see, nothing must come in to take us away from God. And Adam should have acted in that way. His job as priest was to ensure that Satan didn't get a foothold in God's holy land. And next time, as I said, we'll we'll, we'll read the terrible account of the consequences of the fall of man. Just in closing, I want us to consider these few, um, perhaps practical points. You and I, as Christians, are not in the same position as Adam or Eve in the covenant of works. We're in a completely different covenant. In fact, we don't have a covenant to keep. Christ kept the the covenant, thankfully. I will explain that on further occasions, but. What we can learn from tonight as Christians is that we need to beware the snares of Satan. Satan still wants to tempt us into sin. He can't rob us of our salvation, that's impossible. Mm -hmm. But he can rob us of our joy. Mm -hmm. He can rob us of our assurance of faith. He can rob us of our purity. And he can rob us of our usefulness. Mm -hmm. Paul said, Let him who stands take heed, lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. This is the lesson, I believe, as Christians that comes from these verses. Because Satan is so crafty, and he's even more crafty now because he's had centuries of practice since then. then. Mm -hmm. Let us as Christians not be proud. Let us take heed lest we fall. You see, Satan behaves in the same way towards you and I as he behaved towards our first parents. He looks for weakness. He'll exploit your temperament, take an example, you're hot tempered, maybe. By nature, it's a natural characteristic. He'll, he'll exploit, or, or some other tempera- temperamental character that you have. He'll explore your age, your pursuit, your, the desires that you have. He'll cast you down if you're the greedy man crash you down by wealth. Ju- Judas, outwardly, was a good chap. He was so reliable, such a nice disciple, that they, they put him in charge of the money. You don't put a rascal in charge of the money, do you? And yet in his heart there was greed, you see. Mm. There was avarice, there was lust. And, and Satan took advantage of his weakness. If you're a youth, he can you will take advantage of youthful lusts and things like that. Whatever your weakness is, we all have them. Intellectual pride, being bookish rather than practical. Whatever it might be, whatever your weakness is, guard it, give it to God every moment of the day. The scriptures warn us to carefully observe Satan's devices. 2 Corinthians 2 11 Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices.
1: Mm.
0: I don't Martin Luther and, and see the devil right over the But neither be ignorant of his devices. The example of Christ in the wilderness And his temptation is that we should flee all communications with Satan and use the authority of God's word to expel him, Mm. like our first parents should have have done. What did Jesus say, away with you, Satan. We should be aware of any corrupt desires within us, avoid any occasions to sin, And to ask God continually to sanctify our external senses, our sight, our hearing, our taste, and our touch. I think we should be giving to God to sanctify. He will purify. them. We are to bravely resist, say, to the scriptures say. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We are to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. I don't think often that people don't get what that's saying. It's basically saying you're the last man standing. All your comrades are slain on the battlefield. And it's just you. And you want to give up. But God's saying, having done all with your last breath. Keep standing. That's what God calls us to. Not in our own strength, but in the armour of his strength. We must deny worldly lust, overcome the world, exercise faith through the Spirit, and especially through the Word of God. Mm. And most of all, dear friends, let us with confidence and prayer Depend upon God himself. Because we don't do this in our own strength. We do it in the strength that he supplies. Mm. And so do tonight, to Friend let us learn these lessons from the temptation and fall
1: of man. Amen. Amen.